Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and I'm joined today, as always, by Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, it's been a very uh, interesting start to the year, Simon, particularly in the investment trust sector, as far as market movements are concerned. But first of all, let's just talk about the general market situation and uh, what's been happening in the uh, equity and bond markets this week. Well, it's been a tricky week for the investment companies sector again. So in the first four trading days of the week, the investment company sector find themselves in negative territory, down 1.4%. That compares with a rise for the wider UK market, the FTSE all share up 0.6% in that period. So, so far, year to date, uh, investment companies are in the red. They're down about 3.7%, and that compares with a rise of 1.6% for the FTSE All Share, though clearly very, very early days. We have seen the sector average discount widen out a little bit. Probably started the year around about 1.6%, so it definitely narrowed as we came to the end of 2021. Uh, the reverse has been true so far this year, and we've seen that uh, discount move from about 2.1% to 2.9% this week. But certainly across the wider marketplace, the mood music is skittish. Um, a lot of chat about inflation. UK inflation apparently now projected to hit 7% in the not-too-distant future as a result of higher energy bills. There's talk of four rate rises in the US and a kind of faster than expected move on that front. And we also had data on US unemployment uh, and that fell rapidly as well. So that would suggest more inflationary measures. But on more positive news in the UK, at least the GDP number recovered to its pre-pandemic levels. So let's hope that continues. Well, as we said last week, uh, Simon, let's hope that the old adage about as so goes January, so goes the year. We don't want that to see that happen. It has been a fairly tough start, for, certainly for the investment trust sector this week. And uh, of course, there's been a lot of politics in the UK as well, which uh, we won't be talking about just yet. Before we talk about the specific companies we're going to talk about this week in our normal weekly review, let's just talk about some of the uh, the trusts which have moved the most over the year to date. And we've only been going, this is what, third week of the year. And uh, we've seen some quite significant moves by uh, historical standards, at least uh, in the likes of, you know, Scottish Mortgage and some others. So perhaps you could give us some highlights of that. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, effectively, we've seen to this point when we're talking eight trading days or full trading days, uh, and the pattern has been clear. It's been a difficult environment for those investment trusts who follow a more growth orientated investment approach. And conversely, those who are more value orientated, value positioned, seem to have fared a little bit better. So just to put some numbers around that, the best performers year to date, well, we've got BlackRock Energy and Resources Income up 13% so far year to date, followed by CQS Natural Resources Growth and Income, and actually uh, BlackRock World Mining not too far behind them. So that resources mining sector uh, have done well, but also on the value side as well, Temple Bar up over 10% in share price terms so far this year. Conversely, if you look at the uh, list of the laggards, and again, just stressing this is incredibly early days, but there are a lot of uh, the Bailey Gifford funds find themselves on the list at the moment. So Edinburgh Worldwide uh, Investment Trust down 16% in share price terms so far this year. Bailey Gifford US Grove not too far behind it. 
Scottish Mortgage, you mentioned, uh, they're down about 12%. Bailey Gifford, Shin Nippon, down 11%. And actually, it's worth noting that certainly Japanese smaller companies in general have uh, had a tough time of it of late. But also, aside from Bailey Gifford Funds, We've seen Biotech Growth Trust down 16% year-to-date share price terms. Allianz Technology down 12%. So it's a kind of similar theme that we're seeing here. A difficult start to the year for growth investors. Why might that be the case? Well, um, as mentioned earlier, there's a lot of talk about rate rises. And the theory, at least, is that that is a difficult environment for growth-orientated companies. That when you come to value the potential growth that those companies have, that when you uh, apply a higher starting interest rate, then those companies are naturally valued less. That's the theory. But certainly so far in the first few weeks of the year, it would seem to be that the market seems to be positioning itself in that regard. Indeed, that trend is, as you like, is a reversal of what happened in uh, 2020 when all these stocks uh, soared quite uh, dramatically. So there's an element of correction going on. I think perhaps indication also the fact that the you know, the market is becoming a little bit polarised, people trying to work out what the new regime is going to be. And uh, placing their bets accordingly. And so far this year, it's gone as you say. So that's an interesting one to watch. It perhaps underlines, hardly needs saying, the argument for being diversified and having a a combination, certainly at the moment, of value and growth together, is uh, rather than being heavily reliant on one. If you have a portfolio that has equal weighting in both, you'll probably be trugging along quite nicely because the value ones are doing well and the growth stocks are doing badly. But of course, not everybody chooses to invest that way. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some specifics. We're going to kick off with corporate activity. Let's kick off with Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus, ticker AAS. They've put out a circular, I think. Yeah, that's right. I think we talked about this one back in November when the original announcement was made of a number of new proposals, including a new investment policy and an enhanced dividend policy. There is a now a general meeting scheduled for the 27th of January. Uh, seeking shareholder support for those measures. And assuming that that is forthcoming, there will be a five-for-one share split as well, which will become effective on the 4th of February. But this represents a kind of move forward for Aberdeen Standard Asian Focus. I mean, effectively, the proposals will allow the restriction to be removed that's prevented uh, investment in companies with market caps above 1.5 US billion. So basically, they were kind of limited in terms of the size of companies they could back. And also, Flavio Chong, an experienced member of the Aberdeen uh, investment team in Asia will be joining the management team as well for this particular investment trust. Can we say anything about how this particular you know changes have gone down? I mean, has it had an impact on the rating, for example, or uh, perhaps we can't distinguish that from the B uh, underlying performance effects? But what uh, what are you seeing there? Well, we have seen the rating improve on this one. So over the previous twelve months, it's traded on average about eleven percent discount. Uh, that's narrowed in of late. It's probably on about. Seven seven and a half percent discount at the moment, so it has been positively re-rated. Whether it's a result of this particular development might be a, a mute point, but certainly when you compare it with its peers, so Scottish Oriental smaller companies, that's on a twelve percent discount. That's broadly in line with its average over the previous twelve months. Fidelity Asian Values six percent discount. That's actually wider than its three percent average over the previous twelve months. You could say that the Aberdeen Fund has moved in the right direction. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Dunedin Income Growth, ticker DIG, not to be confused with DIGS, uh, DIGS, which is uh, another trust that's gone in a different direction. Let's uh, talk about Dunedin Income Growth. 
So Dunedin Income Growth announced this week a change to its management team lineup. So Samantha Brownlee and Rebecca McLean will join Ben Ritchie as the name managers of Dunedin Income Growth. Ben Ritchie remains the lead manager and he's been involved or he's been the lead manager actually of this particular investment trust since 2016. He's been involved since 2009. But basically, we learnt a month or two ago that uh, Georgina Cooper, who was the previous co-manager, uh, would be leaving Aberdeen at the end of January. Uh, and so these are the named replacements, both very experienced fund managers. Samantha's been at Aberdeen or its predecessors since 2007, uh, and Rebecca has been on board since 2013. So a very experienced investment team. Yes, I don't know much about this trust, funny enough, to my uh, personal discredit. Uh, but I do notice that next year, it's going to be coming up to its 150th anniversary. It's another one of these veteran investment trusts. And uh, it's about, what is it, 500 million or so in market cap? Just tell us about its style, uh, Simon. Well, it has been a, an interesting one. So it's in the UK equity income subsector. But actually, last year, it announced proposals and it, they were approved by shareholders to adopt a more uh, kind of ESG investment approach, which basically means that it will not invest in certain areas of the marketplace. So a, a kind of ESG enhanced uh, investment approach, I think you could possibly say. And as a result of that, it did get uh, positively re-rated. So it's just trading on a very small discount at the moment. I think it's briefly touched a premium rating and that compares to an average discount of about 2%. But in the UK equity income peer group, uh, obviously yield is, is normally a kind of key component. And this particular investment trust is yielding on a historical basis 4.1% at the moment. Very interesting. OK, so let's move on and talk about Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income. That's ticker JEFI. What have they announced this week? Yeah, so this was uh, an interesting development, actually. They've announced proposals to change their redemption facility. So at the moment, and, and they've been running with this since they launched back in 2017, the annual redemption facility is unlimited. It's normally held midway through the year, but they're looking to move that to hold it every three years and limit it to 20% of the share capital. And that will actually be accompanied by a triennial continuation vote. Uh, that means that the next redemption will be in June 2024, so another two and a half years away. Uh, so why have they done this? Well, I think the chairman in uh, his comments made it clear that really it's a kind of function of the size the company now finds itself. So at their last redemption point in June last year, they saw quite a high level of redemptions. And I'm going to say off the top of my head that it was about 30%. It was certainly quite a significant number. Um, and that certainly hasn't helped its size. It finds itself of assets of about 66 million at the moment. And as we've discussed before, size does matter with regard to uh, investment trusts. If you get too small, then you tend to drop off the radars of, of a number of investors. And that would certainly seem to be the fate of Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income. So by removing that annual redemption facility, it gives the chance for the, the investment trust to kind of grow its assets organically for a period of time. Do you think this will be uh, greeted with approval by shareholders? I mean, it's uh, as you say, it's a small trust. And we know that uh, small trusts often have difficulty in persuading their uh, shareholders to uh, carry on uh, if they can't reach a certain size. Obviously, that's what they're trying to do here. Uh, would you like to uh, put a wager on this one or, or not? Well, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, it has struggled a little bit of late. Its average discount over the previous 12 months is about 6%. It's been derated. It now finds itself on a 9% discount. And if you look at its track record as well, certainly over three years, three years NAV total return, that's coming about 36%. 
That's higher, to be fair, than the MSCI Emerging Markets, which is not its index, uh, but is a, not an unreasonable comparator. That's up 26%, but it's below and behind JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income. That's up 40% over that three-year period, but that also finds itself on a discount of about 9%. So despite the fact that both those funds actually offer higher than average market yield, so the JP Morgan Fund's on a 3.5% yield, the Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income on a 4.4% yield, it would seem that shareholders have kind of drifted away, rightly or wrongly, from that area. I mean, you know, there, there could be an issue here in terms of emerging markets. Emerging markets have not really uh, been in favour now for some time. And I suspect given the retail shareholder base of these particular funds, then that's possibly been one of the issues. OK, so one to watch there. Next up is uh, Third Point Investors, ticker TPOU. I don't think we've had any more uh, verbals this week in terms of the uh, ongoing spat between the hedge fund trust and some of its shareholders and the board. What, what have they had to say today? So no new letters, but we have had the details of the 2020 exchange facility. And this is something that we've discussed before. They basically had an exchange facility in place for 2021. That was at a 7.5% discount to NAV and no shareholders took that up. But now the 2022 facility is in place. That runs from the 14th of January to the 15th of March. Shareholders convert ordinary shares into the, the master fund that Third Point Investors effectively provides access to, and that's at a 2% discount to NAV. But, and here's the catch, the minimum exchange value per shareholder is actually $10 million. So you need a reasonable slug of shares in this particular fund in order to take advantage of that facility. And that's based on the NAV at the end of December. And the maximum size of the facility is $75 million. So what's really going on here is that this mechanism is being used to give institutional investors a scope to kind of walk away or convert into the equivalent master fund and basically take the uplift. The, the current discount on third point is about 13%. So in theory, at least you could convert into the, the master fund at a, a much tighter discount and revalue at NAV. However, there always are a few kind of catches and it looks as if that holding would be subject to a six-month initial lockup period. And then thereafter, the maximum you could redeem of that would be 25% per quarter. So it's not the case that you flip into the master fund and then just walk away with your cash all in one go. The long and the short of it is, will this drive the discount in by providing institutional investors with a mechanism to walk away some kind of almost liquidity event? Will this see a narrowing of the discount? And that's the question. We'll find out in the months ahead. Indeed, we will. So let's move on to fundraising. Uh, we said last year we finished uh, the year very strongly, as we know, a record year last year in many respects of fundraising. And it hasn't stopped anyway as we go into the new year, not despite this rather volatile market we've been looking at. So let's talk first about Aberdeen European Logistics Income, ticker A-S-L-I. That's Aberdeen spelled A-B-R-D-N in the, in the modern way, virtually valve-free. So what have they had to say? Well, this week they launched a placing under their share issuance program at 110p per share. And that was in order to meet what they described expected near-term funding requirements of about 142 million euros and to fund further pipeline opportunities. So there is an opportunity for private investors to subscribe, should they so wish, via primary bid. And the placing price, that 110p, that represents about a 2% discount or so to the closing price just ahead of the announcement and a 4% premium to the NAV as at the end of September last year. 
So the placing is due to close on the 1st of February with the new shares, uh, should they be successful, due to be admitted to trading on the 4th of February. And that basically, this placing follows the full deployment of uh, the £125 million they raised back in September. And I know you'll ask me, so I shall tell you in anticipation that that money was raised in October, 109p. Very good. You were right. I was going to ask you that question. So you've very cleverly and astutely uh, preempted me on that. Well, interesting to see how the uh, this latest placing goes. It obviously was a very been a very popular sector, the logistics sector. But there's been a little bit of movement in the discounts, one or two of them I noticed. But anyway, we'll see how that one goes. Let's move on and talk about Digital 9 infrastructure, ticker DGI9, which was uh, one of these two or one of three, I think it is now, uh, digital infrastructure trusts that have been launched in the last year or so. What have they had to say? Well, it's been a busy week, actually, for Newsflow from Digital 9. They announced early in the week that they'd made a follow-on investment of 93 million US dollars in Vern Global, which is a data center platform. Um, so they're building up their position there. They also announced that they'd taken a 56% stake in Tetra Island Communications. That was acquired for 76 million euros. And there's a possibility to increase that up to 100% in due course. So basically, the idea is that they are making new investments. And in fact, the fund is now fully deployed or committed in terms of its existing capital. Um, so as a result, it's seeking to raise around about £200 million in a placing at 108p. And that represents about a 1.5% discount to the previous trading price and about a 4.5% premium to the NAV as at the end of June last year. The new shares would be entitled to the dividend in relation to the final quarter of last year, and that's expected to be 1.5p. And the proceeds would be used to acquire further assets. But they've identified an immediate pipeline of about £325 million, that's part of a total pipeline that scales up to 1.8 billion. So there certainly don't appear to be seeing any shortage of investment opportunities. Now, interestingly enough, the placing closes on the 25th of January, which just, and one can only assume that this is purely coincidental, is the date that Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, it's probably its closest rival, is also closing its own placing. We talked about that one last week. That's a placing at 106p, about a 4% premium to NAV. So we have the two kind of digital funds vying for attention and uh, seeking to raise money uh, and closing on the same day. Indeed. Well, that will be interesting to see how that goes and whether the appetite for uh, further investment in this area remains where it was. I think the Digital 9 investment, I mean, I think that's their, isn't that their fourth investment? I think it is something like that. So they have finished, as you said, their initial programme. How are these shares trading? Obviously, with all this fundraising going on, you'd think maybe some of the premiums are coming in a little bit. Is that is that right? Both funds are probably on about a 6 or 7% premium or so at the moment. Um, that's just probably a little bit under their average over, well, not even 12 months because they've been going a relatively short period of time. But it is pretty impressive how much capital has been raised. I mean, just to remind people, Digital 9 Infrastructure only came to the market in March last year raising 300 million for its IPO. It came back in June, raised 175 million, then back again in October, raising 275 million. And I'm struggling to think of an equivalent example of an investment company coming back to the market four times in a 12-month period from launch, raising these kind of sums of capital. It certainly uh, seems to be a very, uh, I don't want to call it a hot area, I call it a very popular area, and seems to caught the imagination of investors. Uh, and it is something different from what we've uh, had in the investment trust sector before. That's going to be an interesting one to watch as well, as will be 
Hydrogen One Capital Growth, ticker HGEN, which was another very recent newcomer to the sector. I think it does what it says on the tin. It invests basically in hydrogen or companies that are related, involved in the hydrogen business. Uh, and tell us what they've had to say. What are they doing? What are they proposing to do or, or have done? Yeah, so they announced basically a portfolio and strategy update this week. So to date, they have deployed 46% of their available capital. So just to remind people, they IPO'd back in June last year. They raised $107 at that stage. However, they believe or they expect a full deployment of capital by the end of the second quarter this year. So to date, the portfolio comprises of 19 listed positions, and that represents about 9% or so of their IPO proceeds. In addition to which, they've got three private companies. They equate to about 37%. Uh, and uh, to date, again, more than 90% of the portfolio is in the UK and the European Union. But the pipeline is strong. They're talking about an active investment pipeline of over 500 million and more private opportunities as well, including near-term opportunities of about 200 million or so. And as a result, the fund is considering options for raising further capital in the near term. So one to watch. That certainly seems to be the logical conclusion of what uh, you and they have been saying. And that one trades on a big premium, does it not? It does. Yeah, I've got it on my screen uh, at about a 17% premium. I'm always slightly wary on these because the, the NAVs can be a little bit stale. So I couldn't tell you at the top of my head when they last published an NAV. But clearly during a kind of ramp up phase, that's something you have to kind of keep an eye on. Indeed. Uh, let's move on and talk about JLEN Environmental Assets, ticker J-L-E-N. Tell us what they're proposing to do. This is an infrastructure fund, of course, um, but with an environmental tinge to it. Yeah, that's right. So there were a couple of bits of news out for JLN Environmental Assets this week. They announced that they'd sold two French onshore wind farms. I don't think it was a question of their nationality. Um, it was more the fact I don't think they were part of their core portfolio. They sold those for just short of about six million euros, and that was in line with the valuation at the end of September last year. But tellingly, 25% above the valuation at June last year, and that was the last valuation point prior to the receipt of firm bids. This is probably worth noting because it represents the fund's first disposal effectively. Uh, and the chairman commented in this announcement that while the scale of the valuation uplift cannot be assumed across the entire portfolio, he believes uh, that it demonstrates the fund's conservative approach to valuations. And this is something that you do find a lot. So this is in the renewable energy infrastructure space that it has seen investment companies trade on quite big premiums. People have often made the comment that the valuations so the underlying valuations tend to be on the conservative side. And ultimately, you never know for sure until the market is tested. And that's what has happened in this particular case. But in addition to that, JLEN Environmental Assets have announced a placing an offer for subscription for up to 60 million new ordinary shares. The issue price is 101p, and that represents a 2.6% premium to their NAV at the end of September and about a 3% discount or so to the closing price just ahead of the announcement. They also made it clear that the target dividend for the financial year ending 31st of March 2020 is coming in at 6.8p. That represents a 6.7% yield on this issue price. And in fact, the new shares will receive the dividend for the uh, final quarter of 2021. So what are they going to do with the proceeds? Well, they look to reduce down the balance on their debt facility. That stands about 110 million or so at the moment. Uh, and in addition to that, they look to fund new investment opportunities. So the placing closes on the 27th of January 
and trading in new shares will begin on the 1st of February. Yes, well, you can see the reason why it, uh, it's useful to be able to demonstrate the conservative valuations by getting rid of one asset, uh, preferably not necessarily a core one, that you can demonstrate that there is a, a valuation uplift there. That obviously has a lot of attractions, particularly if you're going to come back and ask for more money. Well, we've talked about this prospect of higher interest rates and higher bond yields this year having an impact on growth trusts in the equity sphere. But have they had any impact generally on uh, the alternative assets trust that uh, we've been talking about? No, it's a good question. And I think we've talked before about how we saw the premium ratings on some of the infrastructure names, particularly renewable energy, contract last year. But if you look at where we are at the moment, probably the average premium rating on a renewable energy infrastructure fund is probably about 7%. If you look at it on a weighted average basis, so in other words, taking into account the largest fund, that goes up to about 10 or 11%. So still significant premium levels. And if you look at the yields that some of the established uh, renewable energy infrastructure funds offer, they're still quite substantial. And you think even a kind of notional increase in interest rates, I mean, what are we talking about, 25 basis points or whatever it might be, they're still very, very low. Well, if you look at some of the yields, I mean, JLEN, we mentioned on a 6.7% yield, you've got funds like Greencoat UK Wind, North of 5%, 5.1%. And some of the solar funds that we discussed recently, they're offering yields above 6% as well. So still quite substantial yields. So will they be impacted by marginally higher base interest rates? I think the jury's out clearly, but one suspects there's enough flesh on the bones, to be honest. And we're also talking about a period in which we've got quite strong uh, energy prices, as we discussed already. So that will, in due course, have some sort of impact on power prices as well, you'd think. And therefore, in the short term, at least, that uh, that's another countervailing uh, factor. And the margin between the uh, the discount rates you're applying and bond yields is still pretty large. So it's not going to have that material effect, you would think, at least. But of course, we need to see how that plays out. But it's interesting that they have been more, much more resilient than uh, some of these uh, long duration equity trusts that we've talked about, like uh, Scottish Mortgage and Alliance Technology and so on. Okay, let's move on and talk about results now then. Well, before we do that, perhaps you might just make a comment. Is it normal to see uh, quite a lot of fundraising going on in the first couple of weeks of the year? Is that something that uh, we would normally expect to see? The short answer is no, no. I mean, January is a relatively quiet month, to be perfectly honest. As an investment trust analyst, in terms of results and fundraising efforts, uh, but it is different this year. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it was an incredible year for fundraising last year, over £15 billion raised across the investment company sector. And that seems to be continuing as we're going into 2022. OK, so uh, let's move on and then talk about results, as I said. And we're going to kick off with one of the veteran family office trusts, as was now broadened out into a multi-asset trust uh, open to other investors as well. And that is Caledonia Investments, ticker CLDN. And they've uh, had some results. That's right. This was an update, to be fair, for uh, the nine-month period to the end of December, and actually uh, a very strong period for Caledonia Investments. So if you look at their NAV total return in that nine-month period, they were up 22.6%. That compares with a rise of 12.5% for the FTSE All Shares of the UK market, or even 15.7% for the FTSE All World, so global equities. So outperformance on both fronts. Where's that come from? Well, there's effectively three buckets within the Caledonia stable. They've got a quoted equity bucket. That's about 32% of their net assets. That was up 21%. They've got a funds portfolio as well. That's 28% of the NAV. That was up 27%. 
But the private capital portfolio benefited from a couple of sales, namely Deep Sea Electronics and a, a biotech company as well. And those two companies generated cash proceeds of about 347 million, uh, and they saw some good uplifts. So all things told, uh, Caledonia finds itself sitting on a bit of cash at the moment, 340-odd million pounds, and that represents 13% of net assets. Plus, they've got uh, undrawn bank facilities as well. So they've got plenty of dry powder. Probably the other thing to note, and I think we may have discussed this when it originally got announced a few months back, but Will Wyatt, who's been the CEO of Caledonia for a number of years now, he's taken a step back this year, later this year, and Matthew Masters will succeed him. Matt uh, has been on has been part of the investment team at Caledonia for a number of years. So he will step up to take on the CEO mantle. So as you say, this is a, a multi-asset trust, effectively, with different strands to it. And it trades on quite a big discount. I guess it's sort of influenced by the fact that it does have this quite significant private holding set of private holdings. But uh, is there any movement there? Are we Do we know anything about their plans as far as the discount's concerned? Yeah, so the discount has narrowed in over the previous 12 months. It's averaged about 23% and it's tightened in to about an 18% discount recently. So that's moving in the right direction. I think one of the issues that they have with regard to the discount, and they do use share buybacks every now and again, but you mentioned the family office angle. There's quite a big holding through the family interest and there's always that acts as a slight break on pursuing an aggressive buyback programme uh, because of the amount of stock that's already in the family name. But as you say, it's very much a, a long-standing uh, investment uh, vehicle, and certainly it's enjoyed a, a good run of late. Okay, let's move on then and talk about uh, a UK trust next, which is BlackRock Income and Growth, ticker BRIG. Uh, they have had some annual results. Uh, they're Looking back a few months, what, uh, what have they had to say? That's right. So these were annual results to the end of October, in which time their NAV total return was up over 30%, 30.4%, which may seem quite impressive, but actually represented a little bit of an underperformance against the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share was up 35.4% in that period. So you can imagine it just caught that kind of post-vaccine bounce at the end of 2020. In share price terms, not as good, actually, up 22.2% as the shares move from a slight premium to a 6% discount. And they have been uh, buying back some shares. They've bought over a million shares back, worth about £2 million. But the underperformance has been attributed to a focus on quality companies, when during this particular period, uh, more highly levered cyclical shares outperformed. But actually, as a result, they have increased their cyclical exposure uh, and have also been participating in a number of IPOs. So this one sits in the UK equity income peer group, and actually their revenue earnings per share uh, was up significantly in this time. So it went from 5.43p to 7.1p, so not a bad uplift there in terms of earnings per share. And it meant that although they paid an uncovered dividend, uh, that came in at 7.2p. So it was just a little bit uncovered with regard to that financial year. Yeah, so that does illustrate a little bit. There's a slightly random element in when your year end is. And if you actually happen to catch one period or another, it can sometimes make it appear that uh, you've done either better or worse than, than others who have a different year end. Uh, but of course, that equals out or equals out over time. Okay, move on. We're going to talk about Gresham House Energy Storage, a ticker GRID, G-R-I-D. They've had a trading update. So a trading update from Gresham House Energy Storage, uh, which effectively covered 2021 ahead of the publication of annual results, uh, which will probably come out in about April or so. So basically, the 7P dividend targets fully covered. 
and the same target is expected to be fully covered in the financial year for 2022 at a higher level, and that's as new projects are commissioned during the year. So there's a lot of construction underway here. So again, I'm going to give you some numbers here. Back in September last year, I think the portfolio consisted of about 17 projects with 425 megawatts in aggregate. They've got, uh, or certainly in the final quarter of last year, they had 415 megawatts of battery energy storage systems under construction. They've also added to their exclusive pipeline another 280 megawatts of assets, and they're looking to connect those in 2023 three and 2024 and effectively the target portfolio has been increased to 1.5 gigawatts so lots of lots of numbers there but i think the bottom line is that this is an investment company that is very active or aggressively building out its portfolio of battery energy storage systems in uh, both great britain and ireland yeah and this is uh, one i'm i think i'm allowed to say i have to own myself i'm very pleased with the way it's gone since it was launched uh, but it is on a big premium now we talked about the premiums on some other things coming in but this one and the other battery storage companies are, are all still very popular as well i think are they not no that's absolutely right so i've got gresham house energy storage on about an 18% premium gore street energy storage it's kind of nearest rival uh, on about a 15% premium. What I would say, though, is that one thing to watch out for when you have portfolios with quite a high element of assets in construction is that at the point they become live, so to speak, come online, they tend to get revalued. So in the case of Gresham House Energy Storage, all being well, there should be quite a lot of product coming online, a lot of these battery storage effectively becoming operational during this year. And as and when that happens, you should see a positive uplift to the NAV. So Notionally, an 18% premium, though I'm sure some people will, will look through that. Indeed. Uh, I mean, the point you're making is that that actual uh, commissioning of plants actually triggers a, a proper full valuation, new valuation, whereas if you're only 90% complete, uh, you can't yet take that full uh, proportionate uplift. That makes a lot of sense to me. And let's move on and talk about uh, NB Private Equity, another of these private equity trusts. What have they had to say about their latest NAV? Yeah, so this was an NAV at the end of December. I mean, month on month from November to December, it was down about 2%. And that reflected some changes in valuations in the quoted portfolio element. And that represents about 19% of the entire portfolio. But it's worth noting that the NAV they published this week, 74% of it is based on valuations as at the 30th of September. So that's all the kind of private companies. We discussed this before. There's always a lag before you get those revised valuations. So we won't find out those for a month or two. But despite that, the NAV total return for 2021 is coming in at 40.7%, so just short of 41%. So a very strong period of NAV performance, even before we take into account what's happened in the final quarter of last year for those private companies. In addition to that, they've declared a semi-annual dividend of 47 cents. That was up short of 15% on the last dividend. So they're moving that dividend up. And they're also seeing quite a lot of portfolio activity as well. So a common theme across any number of listed private equity funds. They saw 76 million of US dollars received in December. That takes the total for the year just short of $390 million. And that represents 31% of portfolio value. So they've seen quite a big chunk of their portfolio as at the start of 2021 sold and disposed and basically turned into cash. But they are making new investments as well. In fact, they made 10 new investments in 2021 and they totaled 176 million. Okay, let's move on now and talk about the property sector. 
And let's talk about one of the uh, interesting trusts in the sector, which is LXI REIT, ticker LXI. This is a trust that, from memory, invests mainly in projects that have quite strong inflation-linked leases and arrangements on their properties. So what do they have to say, Simon? Well, they provided an update this week and made the point that they're targeting fully covered dividend of 6.3p per share. And that's for the 12-month period that will begin on the 1st of April 2022. This represents a 5% increase over 6p per share dividend target for the year ending the 31st of March 2022. So in other words, the dividend is moving onward and upward. So they gave very positive noises around that. They made it clear that they remain on track to meet that dividend target for the current financial year. In addition to that, they expect 100% rent collection for the financial year 2022. And in fact, the property portfolio was valued at uh, 1.3 billion at the end of last year. And that represents a 3.3% like-for-like increase. And in fact, a 9% total increase over the final quarter of the year. So a lot of positive noises coming from LXI REIT. Uh, And as you say, the inflation-linked element of it is an important part of the story. 96% of the fund's contracted rents are index-linked or contain fixed uplifts designed to reflect inflation over the medium term. Right. So they might not always be capturing uh, 7% or whatever the current inflation rate is, but uh, they do have that kind of level of protection to a significant degree against uh, future inflation, which is one of the big concerns in the market at the moment, as we've said. Okay, so then we'll move on to talk about Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust, ticker S-E-R-E. What have they had to say about their latest valuation? So this was a valuation at the end of last year. Um, The direct property portfolio was valued at 207 billion euros at that point. And that reflected a 2.2% like-for-like increase over the final quarter of the year. And that was uh, despite the fact they had a 50% interest in a joint venture in Seville, which was actually recognised at uh, nil interest. So the valuation was driven by yield compression across office, retail and logistic assets and the, in fact, uh, you know, what was really driving it well, a Berlin rental DIY investment, a Hamburg office investment and a logistics investment in uh, Rennes as well. So that all worked well for them. And in fact, 96% of the rent due for the final quarter of last year has been collected in. So just to pick up the point that we made earlier about the uh, infrastructure trusts, I mean, other things being equal during this historic period, we talked about yield compression, which is uh, another way of saying that uh, the valuations have gone up as a result of future uh, rents being discounted at a lower rate. So what about uh, if we've got an in- environment of higher bond yields, other things being equal, what's the impact going to be on uh, on property companies like this? Will some of that yield compression reverse, do you think? It's a good point. You know, to what we were talking about, LXI, REIT, I think those property portfolios that do have an element of inflation protection become more valuable, to be perfectly honest. And you can see that in terms of the rating. So if you look at LXI REIT, they're trading out on a 7% premium rating at the moment. So certainly they find themselves in favour. And just to put some context around that, probably the average discount on the kind of wider UK commercial property subsect is probably about 10% or so at the moment. So it's a little bit difficult to unpick exactly where the respective property investment companies are at any one moment in time because they've got a whole range of leases and uh, agreements in place. Um, but clearly, some are standing in a better position with regard to inflation than others. Just to check on those two, LXI, REIT and Schroeder European Real Estate Investors, what is the yield on those two? What are we looking at there? 
LXI REIT finds itself on a, a yield of about 3.9%. So that would be on the lowish side in terms of the, the, the property sector. Whereas Australia European real estate offers a yield of 5.7%, although it finds itself trading on about a 12% discount or so at the moment. So that completes our review of uh, Investment Trust results this week. It's been a uh, a relatively quiet week on that front, though not on the fundraising or on the general market environment from where we've seen some quite significant share price, NAV and discount moves uh, in since the start of the year. Uh, but the only thing that's left to report on is another update on the music royalty sector from uh, Round Hill Music Royalty, ticker RHM, where they've also now acquired another catalogue. And this is a an interesting gentleman whose uh, catalogue has been acquired, which I'm sure you're going to give us a lot of chapter and verse, uh, Simon. I'm sure he's uh, somebody you know a lot about. But tell us, first of all, who he is and... and uh, what the catalogue involves. Well, the announcement is that Roundhill have acquired the music publishing, master rights and master rights royalties, and indeed the administration of the neighbouring rights income for the catalogue of Whitesnake frontman and Deep Purple lead singer David Coverdale, who apparently is a inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's described as an iconic uh, rock frontman, and, and some of his big hits include Here I Go Again, is this love or fool for your loving? Um, but Roundhill obviously have been very busy of late. They're trying to deploy the proceeds from their C-share fundraise. That came in about $87 million. And they've said they're going to provide further financial disclosure when that gets near to completion. Okay, well, there we go. I mean, he was, I think he founded uh, this band Whitesnake after he uh, finished as the lead singer of Deep Purple back in the 1970s. And I can tell you that he's 70 years old and uh, probably earned a, uh, a little bit of a, a nice uh, retirement income, which he will, or windfall, I could say, which he might get from this acquisition. And well, good luck to him too. He comes from the North Riding of Yorkshire in Yorkshire, as was, not called the North Riding anymore, I don't think. But anyway, uh, there we go. So that's the latest royalty catalogue acquisition. And that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. I can tell you that in the Moneymakers Circle, subscribers to that will see a profile of personal assets and investment trusts that uh, I think many uh, listeners will know well and what it does. And maybe a trust that uh, if this kind of volatility continues, you might wish you uh, had some exposure to if markets are going to go on a pretty wild ride this year with its defensive nature. And we also done a Q&A with Simon Barnard, who is the uh, the lead manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, which, uh, as I'm sure you'll recall, uh, raised uh, more than $500 million last year in secondary issues on top of the uh, significant funds it's already raised before that. Uh, Simon has a lot of interesting things to say. I mean, that's one of the trusts uh, that has sold off this year, along with the Bailey Gifford Trust. It's only, I think it's down um, somewhere like 7 8 9% this year already. So you might be interested in listening to what he has to say. Very articulate, impressive speaker, at least, and uh, I think something which you may find of interest and indeed useful as we go into what looks like being quite an exciting new year. And I'd also add that uh, on Tuesday this coming week, Simon and I will be making a uh, appearance at the latest Mellow Investment Trusts and Funds meeting, which is happening online on, as I said, on Tuesday. Uh, we'll be performing at around four o'clock in the afternoon. So if you want to have a cup of tea and listen to uh, what we're going to say, I'm not sure we've decided yet what we're going to talk about, but uh, we will be offering some thoughts on where we are and uh, what might be happening in the months ahead. So thank you, Simon, for your time. And we look forward to speaking again next week. Uh, I know you're going to be busy next week. You have the 
Winter Floods annual conference to organize and to uh, host. And you'll also be bringing out your annual review of the year. And I'm sure there'll be some things in that that we'll want to talk about next week. So I look forward to that. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.